Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today, we're going to take a closer look at some of the top issues in the news. But in our first half hour, we're joined by Dr. Felicia Cornblue. She is a professor of history and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Vermont. And she's currently at work on a book, How to Win a War on Women, My Mother, Her Neighbor, and the Fate of Reproductive Rights and Justice. Uh, Professor Felicia Cornblue, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. I love this show. <laughs> Great. Well, I want to start with, uh, since we're, we're talking about returning to school, uh, that's an issue in your world, too. Um, and there is some news today that uh, following pressure from UVM faculty, the UVM administration has agreed to work with the union on uh, reopening plans. Um, so you're a faculty member. Talk about your concerns and the concerns of your colleagues as we're a few weeks out from welcoming students back to campus. Yeah, I, um, I'm glad that you're interested, and I'm glad Vermonters are so interested in what's going on at UVM. Um, and maybe I'll work backward. Um, I think this this is good news. The the, the university administration has said that it will engage in a round of special, what they call impact bargaining, um, just on the issue of, of reopening. And so after many months of, of making decisions and creating planning boards and advisory boards that, that, um, that sh largely shut out the faculty um, and particularly shut out the, the union, the faculty union, which we you know, which we voted in to be our democratic representative in negotiations um, about our conditions of work. Um, the administration has moved on that, and I think that's um, that's a really positive sign. And um, it's a product of many months of you know of dialogue and faculty concern and and active protest. Um, yeah, and, and was, there were many of us in the in the UVM faculty in in, in the union United Academics, um, which is part of the state chapter of the American Federation of Teachers, who um, who really were were working hard to make sure that this happened. So so I'm glad to see that. It's not you know we still have a lot of concerns um, about about issues of salary and issues of workload. Uh, some of us are seeing our workloads increase dramatically because we're teaching online, um, and at least temporarily, our classes are getting bigger, um, and we're not really sure whether they're going to stay big um, as, or as big as they are right now. Um, and then others of our colleagues have had their workloads cut, and right, right along with that have had their salaries cut dramatically. And on those issues, especially the, the people who have been cut, um, we haven't made any progress, and we haven't really seen the administration willing to really engage on that. So maybe it's a glass half full. You you uh, penned a an op-ed in BT Digger uh, last month in which you you talked about those cuts. So it's obviously interestingly to me you you acknowledge that there may indeed be a need for budget cuts at the school, but you pointed to the lack of progressivity. Uh, in that non-tenure-track professors who make uh, an average of about $60,000 a year were facing a 25% salary cut, while the average salary of the university's 72 top executives, you wrote, 
is over a quarter of a million dollars. Um, it, it, talk about this disparity. I think that's probably pretty shocking to a lot of people to see that kind of a spread. Yeah, I think it is shocking for people, especially if we think about UVM as being, you know, a state public university that is working consistent with the land grant college mission. Um, in some ways, I think the trends in terms of um, in terms of salary are very much like what we see in corporate America. And over a period of time, there have been more and more uh, top administrators. You know, the 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 universities become more top heavy, uh, more and more people in those kind of, I don't know, mid to high administrative ranks, like in corporate America, it's like at the vice president level and the sub vice president. Um, there's more and more of that. And those people are very well compensated and they're very far from the teaching. You know, it seems like those of us who are the closest to students and the closest to doing uh, original research, you know, which is the, these are the, the primary missions of the institution do less well and those who are the furthest away from those missions, especially the furthest away from the teaching mission of the institution, do the best. And um, it's a really, it's a long-term project, you know, to get, yeah. to, to change those curves, you know, and to, and to move those things in the right direction. And we have a, so that's a long-term thing. There's also a short-term thing, which is that the folks who have seen their, their jobs cut and their salaries cut have not gotten any relief on that. And, it would not it would not be hard for the university, you know, if those top administrators who are making over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, if each of them took a six percent or an eight percent cut for one year, then we wouldn't have to lay anybody off and we wouldn't have to cut um, those professors' salaries. It would be it would be pretty simple. All right. Well, um we're, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're speaking in this half hour with Professor Felicia Cornblue. She's a professor of history and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at UVM. If you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 802-244-1777. Uh, last month, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Louisiana's attempt to severely curtail abortions. Um, this came as a shock to many people because Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the liberal uh, majority in this case, uh, which was uh, seemed to be a reversal of an earlier stand that he took against abortion rights. You were actually at the Supreme Court for oral arguments in March. Um, describe what that was like. What did you observe? Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to put on my other hat. So one hat that I wear is I'm a member of the faculty union at UVM, and I've been I, I, I was the president of United Academics some years ago, and I've been an activist within the union. But uh, but my research is about um, gender history and history of sexuality, and I'm writing a book about reproductive rights and justice. So consistent with that, I went to yeah I went to the court in March right before everything shut down for um, for COVID-19. And it was it was an amazing experience in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't get to see that much if you're if you're a journalist, unless you're one of the really elite fancy journalists, um, you don't get to sit uh, close to the to the big bench where the justices are um, or the tables where the lawyers make their arguments. So I was pretty far back and had to kind of crane my neck. Um, but I still got some of that sense of the the austerity of the environment and the, the intimidation factor of, you know, it's kind of 
I, I was just imagining and what a heavy lift it would be to be there, you know, representing women's rights and the rights of pregnant people or potentially pregnant people, um, you know, in that environment and coming coming as kind of as an outsider, you know, representing what representing gender rights and, and equity in that very old fashioned kind of patriarchal place. Um, and the, the fascinating thing to me about in terms of the content of it was that the feminist argument, um, which I thought was done very skillfully by um, an attorney named Julia Reichelman, um, was it was not very um, not very razzle dazzle and not very passionate. And in fact, they didn't talk very much about individual pregnant people who wanted abortions. Instead, they talked about doctors who wanted to serve those pregnant people because uh, the the plaintiff that was bringing the case was um, was a clinic, an abortion clinic, and doctors in the clinic. And they also, they made a case that seemed very kind of conservative. It was all about process and procedure and the ancient traditions of the law and the court. And at the time, I thought, oh, the only reason, the only reason I can figure out that they would be doing it this way, you know, and being kind of so conservative in their argument would be because they're aiming it all at Justice Roberts, right? They're betting the they're betting the house on Justice Roberts, and that he's going to side with the liberals in this case, um, even though he himself is, I think, anti-abortion, and he he actually ruled the other way in a case that was almost identical just a few years ago. So turned out um, turned out I was right, and and they were right in a sense to bet the house um, on Justice Roberts because he did vote with the four um, Supreme Court justices who are considered the liberal block on the court. And, you know, not only um, in this case and preserved the ability of these doctors to continue serving their clients in the state of Louisiana, their patients, um, but also, you know, for at least for now, made sure that, that Roe versus Wade continues to be good law and that abortion rights are still protected under the Constitution. It's interesting because this what you're describing of sort of the high strategy of arguing in front of the Supreme Court. I was marveling at that with the other big decision around uh, uh, sexuality and gender issues. The one uh, just prior to that, I believe it was uh, around upholding transgender rights, the rights of transgender mm -hmm. people in which the whole argument was aimed at Justice Gorsuch, um, a very conservative justice, but who is known as a textualist, a term I had not heard prior to that, where he has a very, I guess, you almost fundamentalist reading of text. And so the entire argument was based on uh, winning him over because the text of the law should uphold transgender rights, and they bet the House. And they won on that. Um, but you're describing a very similar thing, all aimed at Justice Roberts. Well, that must have been really something to see in person. Um, I, was, I, it, I, I know, wonder... When it seemed like Justice Ginsburg's head was going to explode. You know? And you feel like, you know, poor, poor Justice Ginsburg. Like, please, you know, somebody give her a break. Um, and uh, let's hope that that happens. Yes, and uh, we are all cheering hard for her to survive until January at least, if not much longer. Um, uh, you could hear a collective um, 
uh, gasp around the country uh, a week or so ago when the word went out that she was back in the hospital with cancer issues. Um, right. Well, uh, in turn, what is your sense of where do abortion rights stand now? What is uh, how precarious are abortion rights in America right now from where you sit? Well, that's that is the right question. Um, it's so hard because on the one hand, you know, just just like with that that Supreme Court decision on gay rights and trans rights, you know, we want to absolutely celebrate every victory, and you know, every one of those strategic moves that the advocates are able to make when they go to the federal courts, which have become so conservative, you know, it's like yay, you know, good good for you all. Um, and uh, and so I do want to celebrate the fact that um, you know the state of Louisiana is is not going to be able to deny abortion access to basically 99% of its population. That's a little high. 95% of its population, right? If if the Supreme Court had not done what it did, then the state of Louisiana would have become nearly a no abortion zone, right? Um, so, yay, that didn't happen. So abortion is still somewhat accessible. But if you have to actually look on the ground, you know, abortion access is actually not that great, even, you know, even even now, even without the kind of draconian restrictions that were being considered in the United States Supreme Court. So there, you know, there are a lot of people all over the country who who want or feel like they need to access those services who simply aren't able to. They're not able to because they can't afford it. And since since the late 1970s, the United States government has stopped providing federal Medicaid funds uh, to cover abortions. Um, their Medicaid funds are available in some states, um, but um, but not not the federal dollars. And even beyond that, there uh, there are a whole host of other restrictions that the Supreme Court and the other federal courts have said are okay that block people's access to abortion. Um, and, you know, and there are lots of other things that people need other than abortion if they're, if they're really going to have what we sometimes call choice or reproductive freedom or reproductive liberty. You know, we would want people to have not just access to abortion, but access to the full range of their healthcare needs. You know, if they choose to have a child, then they should be able to do that and be able to get decent health care for themselves and their children and, you know, really robust prenatal and postnatal care. You know, if we if we really are interested in people having full reproductive freedom and reproductive choice, then, you know, then it's like, yay, Supreme Court. And gosh, we have an awful lot of work to do. So you were just on book leave and uh, this this segues into uh, what your book is about. And um, you win points, in my mind, just for the title, because you've got my interest, How to Win a War on Women, My Mother, Her Neighbor, and the Fate of Reproductive Rights and Justice. So please tell us how your mother and her neighbor relate to the fate of reproductive rights. Uh, sure. Well, so I'm, I'm writing about these issues, but I'm, I'm trained as a historian. So I'm using I'm using a historical case study to to illuminate um, issues of reproductive rights and what 
what some activists and scholars today call reproductive justice, which is that kind of bigger approach. Like, yes, we need legal abortion, but we also need, you know, healthcare and nutrition and all kinds of other services. That's a kind of reproductive justice approach and, you know, fighting racial um, injustice and so on. And very sadly, I, I only found out after my mother died, um, I mean, literally the day after she had a disabling stroke, that my mother was deeply involved in the effort to decriminalize or legalize abortion in New York State. And that was an incredibly important campaign because it happened in 1970, three years before Roe versus Wade. And it was the, there, were, there were a bunch of state campaigns, ultimately, including in Vermont, to decriminalize abortion. But New York was the, absolutely the most important of those. And it was the leader. And what happened in New York really set the stage for Roe versus Wade. Um, and so I found out about that and started to learn about that campaign she was part of, um, which didn't involve the courts. Like they, they didn't need the they didn't need the courts in order to do that work, which is one reason why I think people today will be really interested, right? Because we have pretty hostile courts. Um, but then as I was doing my research, I also remembered that our next door neighbor for a period of many years was a reproductive uh, justice or rights activist herself. She was a, a Puerto Rican woman doctor named Helen Rodriguez Trias, and she was one of the earliest people who was making that, that kind of bigger argument that, yes, we absolutely need access to abortion, but we also need if we're going to have real reproductive freedom or justice or rights, we need this bigger menu of things as well. And she was standing up for that perspective. And, you know, she was very much aware of it because she was coming out of the Puerto Rican community on the island of Puerto Rico and in New York City and was working in, uh, with other low-income people and communities and really knew about people's needs, you know, women's needs, pregnant people's needs beyond the need of abortion. So I'm writing about I'm writing about the stuff and the, the stuff my mom was involved in and the effort to decriminalize abortion in New York. Um, and I'm also writing about the critique that was made even way back in the 70s of, of an approach to reproductive rights that says that abort or suggests that abortion alone would be enough. Because, you know, I, you I don't think abortion not- is enough today. When you say you you only found out about your mother's activism after her death, how, how did she not talk about it at all? Even though this is sort of your field of work. Uh, yes, it, it sounds it sounds ironic, almost hard to believe. Um, I mean, there was a, there was kind of a story in my family. My my father used to say it. Um, but not my mother. My father used to say, "Oh yeah, the law that the law that legalized abortion in New York State was written in our living room." And I never knew exactly what that meant. But so there was a kind of there was that kind of rumor that I knew about. But really, it was it it was the morning after my mom had her stroke, um, and it, as it happens, um, it was my nephew's bar mitzvah, and we were all sitting. You know, we we're sitting in synagogue. My mom was in the hospital, and she had. You know, she had lost consciousness after her stroke. And my older sister leaned over to me and said to my dad, hey, what was that organization that mom was involved in? You know, the one that legalized abortion in New York State. Was that called the Professional Women's Caucus? 
Alliance or something. And she and my dad started talking about it, about this organization I had never heard of and these aspects of that campaign and that effort that I had never heard of. And then a couple of months later at my mother's memorial service, the state legislator who actually had introduced the bill that decriminalized abortion in New York, he said that my mother was the one who personally lobbied him and got him on board with the issue and got him on board with the, you know, the particularly um, radical for the time approach to the issue that he wound up taking and that wound up winning in New York State. And I had never known that before. I never, never. I, I, inter- I interviewed her for hours and we just didn't talk about it because I didn't know to ask. Isn't that terrible? I mean, there's there's just it's sort of a poetic symmetry of some sort that I mean, to to put state the obvious, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Uh, but you didn't know there was a tree next to you all this time. Um, <laughs> That's right. I mean, literally, my job title is feminist legal historian. And my dad, my mom was involved in a feminist legal campaign. That was one of the most important, in, at least in the modern history of New York, and I would argue in the modern history of the United States. And I, I really never got to talk to her about it. Hmm. Well, now you get to learn about it um, in postmortem. Um, I, I will say one of the uh, conversations, one of the Vermont conversations that for me uh, has been uh, the most memorable was speaking with a pioneer of reproductive rights here in Vermont, a physician, Dr. Emma Otto Lenghi. Um, her description of what life was like in that 1970 to 73 window where um, and how women were getting abortions, uh, the Catholic uh, nuns who were part of the movement, uh, underground movement. Uh, it is really an extraordinary uh, thing. I encourage listeners to um, to find that on the podcast page at VermontConversation.com, but you're describing a similar uh, period there in New York. Um, just in the couple minutes yes, we have left. Just, uh, sorry, if I can just add, there are probably also some people listening who remember that period and who remember before Vermont was willing to legalize um, that people crossed the state border. And the fact that New York you know, was a place where people could get access to safe legal procedures was extremely important for people outside the state of New York, you know, because New York had no residency requirement. You didn't have to be a resident of the state in order to go there. And it was the only place in the country where that was true. So I've talked to many hmm. feminists in Vermont who got their start um, by helping women get to New York to access those safe legal procedures. Remarkable. Uh, and, and you know, we are not just talking about the past. We could be talking about the future where uh, the country is broken up into zones where people are able to access reproductive health and reproductive rights and abortion rights and whole states where they're not able to do that. Um, and that checkerboard would kind of look like a global map where the same is true of, of entire countries. Well, um, that's right. I think we're running out of about out of time here. So uh, I just want to thank you, Dr. Felicia Kornblue, for joining us once again on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. 
Uh, Felicia Cornblue is a professor of history and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Vermont. Her forthcoming book is How to Win a War on Women, My Mother, Her Neighbor, and the Fate of Reproductive Rights and Justice. 